0: You know, when your co-host is changing the world of fashion, you have to accept that there are times when she's just too swamped with clients and meetings to join me. But she sends her love and will be back for more conversations when she can. So we're on our own, dear listeners, but we are not alone. Joining me today is Shelly Craig. Shelly is a Program Director for Faith and Grief Ministries in Dallas, Texas, And more importantly, she was my first roommate at college. Welcome, Shelly, to Clearly Speaking, the podcast. (laughs) Thank you, Michelle. And yes,
1: we were uh, our first roommates. We met during orientation when we were taking the math assessment test. And I remember saying that girl has really cool hair. I'm going to sit by her. And I I was on a mission because I was an out-of-state person and so are you. We didn't know that at the time to find a roommate before I left orientation. Cause I actually just wanted to have met my roommate before I Mm -hmm. showed up. Mm -hmm. And so we just started talking. We found out, Oh, you're out of state. I'm out of state. Oh my gosh, this is great. And then we found out we had the same major and it was like, okay, we're good. And, um, and,
0: but did we pick each other or did the university put us together? i know we picked each other we did this is embarrassing i apologize i don't remember that aspect i remember you calling me well yes from pennsylvania right right that's my like that's my first recollection of you was that before or after the math test i don't
1: know i guess after wait you know what they might have put us together
0: i think they put us together and then I don't you know me. I don't and know. And it was
1: a very long time ago, it was, Michelle. It
0: was just a few years ago.
1: It was just a few years ago. It was, it was a time when um, the financial world was falling apart, but we didn't know that because we didn't care. We had um, the finances anyway. So no, we're like bad. credit card. What is that? Ooh. Savings loan. What is that? Um, yeah. We didn't know that. We didn't know that there All was right. a,
0: bust of the uh, stock market because we didn't care. We were eighteen years old. We were eighteen, and okay. we had this we had this great uh, room and we shared it we shared the bathroom. so it was like a suite. And oh, uh, we remember we shared the bathroom with the other girls that I think were weren't they athletes. they were they were like basketball players, something like that.
1: But I and, still uh, have dreams though, of the biscuits and gravy that our sweet cafeteria workers would make us every morning. Cause we lived in a dorm that had a cafeteria in it, which is not a good thing for freshmen, but it was so good. And they actually cooked back then. I don't know if I think they probably just dump things out of cans now, but actually now it's very frou-frou. It's like a food court and they have like all kinds of stations. Oh yeah. yeah. It's like going to a, uh,
0: bar mitzvah or something. It's like really nice. And I, like, I like to visit my son at his school. Let's go eat your cafeteria. Cause I'm like, there's I'm like, you have no idea what cafeteria life is. You don't know what the commons was really like, you know, or it's just, you know, canned food. And yeah, it was just awful. And the salad bar seen- was lettuce and ranch ah. dressing. Oh,
1: yeah, that was it. You might get Italian, you know, Italian dressing if they were trying something, you know, unique. Um, But yeah, it was it was definitely an experience. And for those of you who don't know, we we went to a very uh, nice college in the deep south. And so that was an adjustment for Michelle and I.
0: (laughs) Yes, because I was coming from Oklahoma after only being in Oklahoma a year from California. So I was, you know, still had a lot of my California style. And then Shelly was coming from Pennsylvania. And
1: and I'd grown up in the Northeast most of my life. And so it was sort of a little bit of culture shock, to say the least. It. At first, I, I adapted pretty well. I think you did too.
0: But it's it was still felt a little fish
1: out of water kind of thing. because Yeah, the
0: thing about, well, we went to school in Mississippi. So the yeah. thing about, I remember, was that in Mississippi, no longer how long you'd live there. If you couldn't talk about who your daddy's daddy knew before your daddy's daddy knew somebody's daddy's, you weren't really from Mississippi, right? Very so much so. Yeah, I had no, I had no daddy's daddy's daddy to connect with anybody else's daddy. So right, right, and we
1: well, I had family in Mississippi, so I could claim that, and that helped to some degree because once they knew your family was this connect to that family connect to that family and since we're kind of all related um it made it a little bit easier but it was still I, I wasn't used to that like no one asked me those questions before I got right I
0: had family and I had family in, I had family in from Al- who lived in Alabama and I had lived right. in Alabama but my dad being military you know we just moved all over so I was right. from everywhere and nowhere, you know, that kind of stuff. So exactly. But have still have great friends from our time there. And oh, like, gosh, yes. Sisters. But the funny thing is, I know, you, I know our listeners would be like, oh, we're just gonna listen to Shelley and Michelle. I know. <laughs> uh, was we we shared a dorm room for during rush, which yes. is called recruitment now, but we called yes. it rush week. <laughs> and uh, so that was really our first experience living together. Right, and right. What was nice was, is that although we pledged different sororities, we still were, it was a, our living situation. We got along living together, which made then having our next semester at, at, uh, at school. Okay. And good. Cause I think yeah. if we had like not gotten along during rush week, we would have been asking for different roommates.
1: It, it might've been rough. Yeah. And somehow, you know, like you have always been a connector, you get people together, um, and I'm in, I tend to be an instigator, so I get people to do stuff. Um, mainly because I don't want to like sit around by myself. Uh, and I remember being it, one night in a uh, during rush, and there must have been 20 or 30 girls in our room, like from our floor and other floors and stuff. Yeah. And I was like, What are all these people doing?
0: <laughs> and and then the I realized in court, yeah, and it's
1: was it was like, just like. I don't know where they the came from is. and we were having a good time, but I was just, yeah. I remember thinking like, you would probably talk to people all day long. I'd talk to people all day long and we're like, Oh yeah, come on over. You know, like yeah, just, whatever.
0: We'll yeah. It was, it was a, it was a good time back, uh, back then. And then, and this would probably be uh, considered some sort of hazy now. and would not be allowed, but when we received our bids, We then had to run across campus from the, the rush dorm to the panhellenic dorm because our university didn't have houses for, um, first sorties at the time. We had, we had floors in a, in a dorm and a chapter room, but we had to run. I don't know how far it was, but. It was far in enough. August in August <laughs> in Mississippi, and and we ran. We ran like crazy. We ran like crazy. And up and we ran up the stairs. We didn't even we didn't even wait for the elevator. No. Oh my god. Thankfully, there's no like nobody had uh, iPhones and, no. and cameras no. like that because <sighs> I'm sure we looked a uh, uh, fright when we arrived
1: on the, our oh, respective we had, floor. We had. We totally had to because I mean I just remember. It wasn't really far, but it wasn't close. I remember that. And a lot of us weren't really into the whole running thing. And then I was like, oh, you have to run. (laughs) And you're
0: like... Thanks. Okay, I guess that's what we're supposed to do. Let's go. And then what was fun was all the uh, current members and that were waiting for us were hanging out on their on their balconies, cheering and cheering us on, which then made you run faster. And uh, so that was kind of exciting. Yeah,
1: yeah, and it was fun. You know, like it was exciting. Like I mean, I know sorority life gets a lot of bad rap these days, and it didn't have. A great rep at the time, exactly. but there is something to be said about women supporting women and being excited about, uh, other women joining their clan, you know, like <laughs> women get a bad rap about being so competitive. Well, I mean, there was certainly a competitive edge to sortie life, but I don't know that I've ever been in another organization where I just felt supported all the time. Like, yeah. They had my back, even if they didn't like me so much at any given time, but, but still, you know, like it's something that you kind of have to experience. And I I hope girls in college right now get that same experience. I don't know if it's the same now. I think Um, it
0: depends on what university you go to. Yeah, I think so too. And, and this, you know, I'll, I'll get on my little soapbox for a little bit and then I'll get off and we'll, you know, talk about wine instead. Uh, I feel like when you have we were fortunate enough that because we didn't have a house to support, right, that it made it that it made it possible and more affordable for more people to be able to be a part of the Greek life. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Because I mean, it was a very it was like any other club practically as far as cost, you know, yeah. Although I
0: did spend all my high school graduation money within the first semester, but I included some pizza and beer as well. And well, yeah, of course. And other things, but uh, I, you know, I, I, I recovered. I'm, I'm good now. But uh, when you have a house to support, uh, like, you know, the bigger universities where they have big houses, they've got staff, they've got all that has to be supported. That really does kind of Exclude um, a segment of the population that would make awesome members of right. a sorority. They just can't afford it.
1: And right. That's, exactly. and that's
0: unfortunate. You know? Oh, I remember um,
1: because our dues were very reasonable, but I remember um, I have several cousins who are in the same sorority I am, and they had a house in their state university where they went. And, you know, it was as much a month as it was for me. A year.
0: Exactly. exactly.
1: And I, I always said, I don't know if I would have done this had I had to spend that kind of money.
0: Well, I think no. if I recall, mine was my dues were like 27 or to $30 a month or something. Oh, yeah. Really, really cheap. There's yeah. no way I could have afforded to be in a sorority at a bigger university that had a house that you know right. we didn't yeah. have houses. Now our university does have houses now, I, but I don't know how much more, I mean, every all the cost of everything has gone up. I don't yeah. know how much more expensive it is to be in a sorority at our, at our alma mater. I think
1: it's more, but it's not, it's not compared to the ones who have, who had their, bought their own property houses, like from like the big state universities. Cause technically the sorority houses at, at our university now it's still university housing. So they've supplemented it at some level. I don't know. I'm
0: sure it's more expensive to live there than anywhere else on campus, but, you know, but still. So I'm going to go ahead and tell our listeners where we went to college because I know that they're dying. We're like trying to speak in code or something, but we attended the University of Southern Mississippi um, in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And uh, we were there when uh, Brett Favre was going to college. For those of you who are follow football, Brett Favre was a quarterback for the Green Bay Packers for a long time. And he was our quarterback at the same time that we were there. Yes. However, Brett chose a different academic path than we did, which has allowed Brett to retire (laughs) a lot earlier from his working life than we have been able to retire. And, you know, uh, (laughs)
1: both of us were uh, radio, television and film majors. And yeah. who's been in a movie?
0: Bre- uh, Brett Favre. Producing a television? Brett Favre. <laughs> Brett Favre, right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Brett Favre did have the painkiller uh, addiction, which you and I haven't had. So no, know there's, trade-offs. No. There, there's
1: there, trade-offs. You know, and everyone has their own path. Um, some of us learn lessons sooner than others, and some have fantastical uh, financial success that no one can understand, but they also have problems. So um, getting to our topic tonight, none of us can escape grief.
0: Right. Well, I haven't, I haven't listed our topic yet, but yeah, we're so. going to talk about grief with Shelley. Um, yes. She is, like I said, she is a program director for faith and grief ministries in Dallas, Texas, which is why you might detect a little bit of a Southern accent coming from this girl who grew up in Pennsylvania. There's a little I, bit of a, there is a little bit of a, a, a hint there. I did have a Southern mother. So I grew up saying y'all, I lived a few places of the South growing up and uh, I have a tendency to assimilate the accent wherever I am. Oh uh, yeah. Well, like a chameleon. Yeah.
1: That's and something so, you and I share because we live so many different places.
0: Well, <laughs> yeah, I was traveling to New Orleans with a friend of mine, her friend Jessica was driving. We were going to New Orleans for a, uh, for a girls weekend. <laughs> she noted she commented that the further south I got on Interstate Fifty Five, the more my accent came. Back, you know, and it was just like, what What are you gonna sound like by the time I get to New Orleans? I'm like, I don't know. I could not tell you what I'm gonna sound like, and that's just how it is. If I'm with somebody, it is not. I'm not trying. I'm not mimicking. I'm not trying to make fun of somebody's accent. I just no. take it on. So. I'm gonna warn our listeners that I might start talking with a Southern accent because sure. jellies is coming through sure. and that might happen. So bear with us. But before we jump into our conversation, yes. the meat of our, of our conversation, cause our conversation is already fabulous. Let's talk about the wines we're drinking. And we're not in the same location, Uh, obviously, because she's in Dallas and I'm in St. Louis. But we are drinking together. And so I I want Shelly to talk about what is in your glass. I am drinking a Craggy Rock Savion Blanc.
1: I think it was like a couple years old. This one is um, not super expensive. So I, I like to buy wines in pairs. I like to buy one less expensive one and one more expensive one. Okay. And I am not, I am by far not a wine connoisseur. I'm one of those weird people that goes, that label looks good. Though I am a big fan. I was for a long time of the middle sister wines, just a little plug there. And so uh, we have a lovely wine bar near our house. Clink. we'll put it on here because if anybody's in Dallas and they do a lovely charcuterie board and then they have wine pairings with that, which I get
0: a pairing from them. And well, where's your wine from? Do you know? It is, it's California, Californian. This one's a California. Yeah. Okay. So what are, what are your notes on it? What, what does it taste like? Do you? you know let's. it's very, Emily's buttered. not here. We have to do Emily's part.
1: It's very good. Um I like it. Cause even though it's a Sauvignon Blanc, it is kind of buttery. Um, I'm not a, okay. I'm not a big Chardonnay person, but I do like that, but you can really smell smoke in it too. Interesting, honestly. So it's like this kind of balance between the two. I would not have said that that goes necessarily, but you know depends on depends on where the vines originally came from. That impacts so many things because if they brought it from Italy or France
0: and brought it to California, that makes a difference. Right. Right. Except so if, if, the, if that was a pair of panties, what would your wine be? I think it would be
1: like a really nice pair of like boxer briefs. Okay. Like girl boxer briefs, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. the little cute, sassy ones. Cause it's kind of, it's, it's a little, um, it's a tiny bit sweet. So it's just like right at the end, it gets sweet. Uh-huh. So I like that. And I'm not a sweet wine person. I usually like it super dry and like makes you go. This one doesn't, it's sweet, but it doesn't end sharp because sometimes they end sharp when they're too sweet.
0: Yeah. That's
1: why I'm not a big rosé person, even though I know that's day. So, I know. I, I like reds and I like whites. I'm like, but I'm really a champagne person.
0: Like, oh you poor thing you poor thing you need to know that you know they did you read uh, the champagne producers are going to just keep the champagne in and they're not gonna be sending it to the US anymore because yep. it's just costing too much with the tariffs and all that other bullshit so they're keeping it to themselves in in France and the the European countries whatever they're not sending it to the US
1: well so, that's the reason to travel
0: well so. you might start picking up some bottles when you're uh, well I now I know that I'm gonna so to that, to that you can have, have some. Good. Um, and that's and I did ask our, our friends at the wine merchant uh, about how long can like champagne lay down. You know, is it something right. I need to worry about? But you can lay champagne down for a long time. It's still for, be okay. For yeah,
1: a for a long, long time. Like as long as it's not disturbed and the temperature doesn't go up and down, you're usually pretty good. Yeah. So, so I'm, yeah. I'm
0: happy with that. Um, tonight I'm also drinking a white, and normally I'm a red drinker, but tonight I wanted to drink a white, probably because it went so good with my pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I'm drinking a uh, 2019 Pouilly-Fuissé, Domaine de Grange, um, by Yannick Paquet, and it is very good. It is very aromatic. I love Pouilly-Fuissé anyway for a mm. white. It's a white says so like a white burgundy kind of thing, but right, it has right, notes like of quince, peaches, um there's some apricot, there's almond, uh yeah it's just really really delightful it's very elegant um there's even like a little bit of nut at the end you know oh yeah with, like um, that a nut and it's it's lovely and you can find this bottle by Domaine de grange anywhere from like 20 dollars to 35 dollars a bottle mm. for this vintage depending on where you are but it's, it's really smooth and pretty and if this were a pair of panties I see a kind of like satiny, um, but like a shimmery pair of panties, uh, traditional cut, but very shimmery, very uh, classic uh,
1: with a little, little, little juj, little Jewish with Jewish. With Jewish. With yeah, you know, but I think mean? I
0: see, I see the material is one of those that, that even though it's like, it's shiny and shimmery, it's where it looks almost like prism colors you know like sort of right. It's white right but it's white but depending on how the light catches it you have different colors that come come with it kind of right right
1: a good That's rich it. silk that just catches the light just yeah. right yeah and looks
0: expensive but maybe it's it expensive and makes you feel like you are the queen of the world
1: right and what is better than Something that looks and feels expensive, but really wasn't. Right. And you know that. It's like the best secret ever.
0: What was interesting, though, when I pulled this bottle out and I was looking at it and uh, was reading the back. And this on the back of this bottle, it says Craig Baker Selections. And... It's kind of ironic that I selected this bottle and we're talking about grief, but Craig Baker was a friend of the wine merchant, and he worked for uh, Mesa Imports out of Dallas, Texas. And huh. he went and he would he would curate wines from all over, and he passed away unexpectedly within the last six months. No, nobody saw it coming, and he was between the ages of 50 and 54. And I did not know him very well. I had met him a few times when he was here for wine tastings and pourings and stuff like that. But I always really liked him and um, always found him fascinating. And so when he died, although it wasn't, it was sudden, but it wasn't like, oh my God, he's like a good friend of mine who's died. I still felt a big loss that he's gone, right? And it was like, and he's not somebody that I know very well at all, but it still impacted me. And I thought, wow, I'm going to have this conversation about grief. And I picked a bottle that was a, that was a Craig Baker bottle. So I feel like we're already, you know, been sprinkled with some fairy dust on this conversation that we're going to have. Yeah.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, it's always interesting, um, just a, a little background about Faithy Grief. So um, Faithy Grief, we're, we're a 10-year-old nonprofit. We provide grief support programs online and in-person. Support groups, workshops, retreats. Um, before the pandemic, we were completely in-person. We would come to your community center, we would come to your organization, your church, and either help you set up a support group or run one for you course, like everything else, we went online, much like we're doing here, and moved to Zoom uh, groups, which uh, early on, everyone's like, I don't think this will work. And one thing I've found with grief is that usually people come to our program when they're desperate, and it gets quiet. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, in the beginning of uh, the loss, like your friends, totally unexpected, we call that acute grief. It's the, the shock, the awe of it. It's really... Uh, a time, if you've experienced grief yourself, and we'll talk about that a little bit in a minute, but um, it's that sort of fog that we walk through in early grief. There's a lot of busyness. A lot of people are coming to visit. They're bringing casseroles. They're checking on you. But there's a point where it gets quiet. Yeah. And for many folks during the pandemic, that's, that process was what we call disenfranchised grief. In other words, we didn't get to grieve the way we wanted to because of the bizarre situation that we've been in. People dying and you not being there to hear their last words, having funerals on Zoom, um, doing all kinds of different things. But in a case when we have a death that's so um, just unexpected. And I mean, even those who may have a terminal illness and we know that eventually they may die, that instance of death is still shocking.
0: You know, even though you've right. been waiting for it, the action right. when they die, it was just too soon. And so that's when you have time to prepare for somebody's death. You do, you do. And I'm and, saying and prepare in quotes. Quotes, exactly. Well, I mean, in the case of someone who has a
1: terminal illness or we know that their death is coming soon, we do have some preparation. I mean, we can't completely prepare ourselves emotionally for it. But sometimes the, the logistics of death, the planning a funeral, the making sure that things are where they should be legally and things like that can happen. But for those who are working with someone with maybe Alzheimer's or a long-term illness, they experience what we call anticipatory grief. This is the fact that you know this person will die. You may not know the date and the time, but you know in your near future that they will no longer be with you. Mm-hmm. And for some folks in that situation, especially if they're the primary caregiver in that situation, they will experience a lot of grief ahead of the death because they're prepared, their, their brain is constantly preparing for it. Um, our brains are really good at doing number one thing, protecting us. Mm. And our brains will do whatever that needs to happen. So that's why in early grief, as we call it acute grief, we kind of get in that weird fog. Because it's so overwhelming, we would just fall down all the time. Like, right, right. we just, we wouldn't be able to function at all. And, you know, for some, uh, they may not function at the level that they've functioned beforehand, before the death. But, but anticipatory grief is a, just a really interesting, I, I think, if I was a psychology student going getting my master's, a PhD, that would be something I would look at. Because we are just now starting to understand how that grief and trauma of being a full-time caregiver around end of life, what kind of impact that really has on us. Yeah. Many people who who are in that role, you know, as taxing and, and challenging as it can be, see it as a as an honor, you know, as a privilege to be able to walk the end of their loved ones' life with them. Help
0: them transition um,
1: like that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So anyway, I well I just wanna let the listeners know that the reason I asked Shelly to be on the program today is that we are recording this during the holidays. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be like grief and the holidays sometimes go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. There's so much celebration, but yet some people can be feeling that sadness and that loss so acutely that I thought, well let's have a conversation about this because sure we can recognize we can um, we can talk about it and maybe maybe find ways to either help ourselves help our friends help our loved ones and and just gain a better understanding of of what grief what grief can mean and like you know it's a lot of times we think grief is is um, limited and again I'm speaking generally you know I know that there's always an exception to the rule uh, but we think of grief as you know when you lose someone, but grief right. can happen to you whether or not, you know, there's an absence, there's a loss of some sort. Mm-hmm. And I know that for myself, I experienced in some some grief this, this fall when my son went off to college and my other son moved to Kansas City and my daughter's in Portland. And I was just, I was sad. And I was like, what is it? What am I grieving? I was grieving the loss of time. Mm. loss of time with my children and now that I'm older and like what happened during all of those years of raising them and I know that I'm not the only one that ever grieves at loss of time and then I'm like and now I'm 52 and I don't know if I have 52 more years so maybe this is like a, I have an anticipatory grief of the loss you know and it was like all of these emotions and I, I would just walk around the house crying just mm-hmm. crying You know, and I had no period to blame it on either, right? It was just, (laughs) it was just crying. But over some time, and not running from it, right? Just sort of accepting this is this is where I am. um, I feel like today I'm not acutely hurting from that. Yeah. You know. Um, (laughs) And uh, although I recognize the loss of time, but I'm not actively grieving it anymore. But I feel like that's, you know, that hit me that way. You know, some people can grieve like a house they moved out of or sure. the fact that you can't go to the office anymore, right? Yeah. Like, we were grieving so much during the pandemic for so we much have. loss. Yeah.
1: I mean, this, is, this has been an extraordinary time of loss for us as a world, you know, like not just a country, but the world. Many people have lost a loved one. But many people lost their businesses, many people lost their livelihoods, some people lost homes, people lost relationships, Yeah. Um, whether that was a divorce, whether that was just, hey, we can't be in the same room anymore because, I, you know, I don't agree politically anymore. You know, I mean, right. there's a tremendous amount of loss and there's a wonderful quote by Richard Rohr, um, who I love. Brene Brown's a big fan of Richard Rohr. Oh, so, right. um he says, pain that's not transformed will be transmitted. And you did the healthy thing. You sat there with your feelings. You cried. You let yourself cry. You let yourself be sad that your house is empty. You have changed. You're not wondering where the rugrats are. You know, what are they doing? How are they doing it? They're getting ready to have their own lives. As a parent, I'm in the same boat. I have kids that are in college. They've got like a year and a half left. And then who knows where they'll end up. It's sad when the house gets quiet. I, I have struggled with it at times. Now, <laughs> unfortunately, one silver lining of the uh, pandemic was they came back. <laughs> um, uh, anytime we experience pain and grief gets involved in that, we can consciously decide what we want to do with it. In early grief, acute grief, um, and there's acute grief and early grief, and there's not much difference other than the acute grief is that kind of beginning part. And sometimes in that piece, a lot of people get really busy because they have to plan a funeral and they have to do this and that and the other way and all that. But with early grief, even, which is really the first few years of loss, any loss, a loss, I say this all the time, is we don't grieve what we don't love. So, You know, you can like something, but if it goes away, you're kind of like, "Eh, that's kind of a bummer, you know? Right. But if you have a relationship with something, whether that's your job, whether that's your home, whether that's your uh, dog, you know, when that loss happens, when that is not there anymore, you're going to grieve at some level. The trick part of it is all grief isn't the same. You won't experience every grief the same, which, you know, if, if your grandparents died, And it sort of was, okay, I was in my early 20s, my grandparents died, that makes sense. But you still miss them. I mean, I can't get through a Christmas Eve service when they hit the three notes of Silent Night without tears coming down my face because my grandmother loved that song and immediately I think of her and my face and so, you know. But as we are grieving these things that we love, we have an opportunity. Um, Grief is like a really strange way to learn things. Because what's happening is we are having to learn who we, we are now. And so if we're now empty nesters, we have to learn how to do that. That means if we have lost a spouse, we have to learn to be a single parent. Maybe if we've lost uh, a parent, well, am I still a daughter? Mm -hmm. You know, like there's, there's some relationship stuff there. And every grief is different because of that relationship. And I think that's one of the things that's really strange for in a family situation. Let's say the patriarch dies, the father dies. Everybody in that family had a different relationship with that person. Even if they were lined up kids and the wife, she was his wife. They were his first son, his second son, his first daughter, his second daughter. Their relationships are going to be different. So their experience with the grief and the loss of that person will be different. Tough part of it is everybody wants everybody to grieve the way they are
0: (laughs) exactly and you're gonna grieve differently i mean people's reactions even to like the pandemic and the grieving that we've gone through the pandemic is different and 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 i think i think for i'll just say for like our society i can't speak for like the globe but for like an american society we have a tendency to try to move people faster through grief we don't have traditional mourning periods like they used to. Right. Where, right. Right. Like, exactly. okay. You know, everybody recognized the woman walking down the street. She was wearing black. She's in mourning. Right. We don't, we don't, what do we give, what do we give people three days off? Maybe, you know, to go to a funeral, maybe you might get one day off. Pay. If you're lucky, you know, if you're, if you're lucky, if
1: you're lucky, you know? if you're, if you're and, lucky that that's a, a benefit that you have is bereavement, uh, leave, Yeah. Uh, it, it's pretty small, and I don't know anyone who's lost a loved one that would say that three days was enough. And it, talking about us compared to other cultures, in Western culture, we tend to move forward, especially uh, in our Puritan US. world that we have created here, um, because feelings you know—feelings can get in the way of productivity. And if, if we have too many feelings, that will crush the economy, which guess what? We saw what happens when we have a massive amount of death happen. Um, So it's not unfactual, but at the same time, we have to give ourselves space to grieve, even if it's on our own turf, our own time, because the grief will keep coming. Right. The grief right. doesn't go. It doesn't go away. That's the other uh, kind of tricky thing about grief. It doesn't go anywhere. You might can put it in a box. You can might like, put it in a, in a shoebox box and put it away, but it will come back because emotions that aren't recognized will
0: demand that they be. But eventually they erupt. and uh, Oh, yeah, they'll find you're it. You're like, right. why am I at the grocery store bawling my eyes out right now, my husband or my child or my, my dog or whatever it is, they died four years ago. Why am I a mess? Why am I finding myself crippled today? You right. know, and then you have to yeah. look and you have to go, what is it? Why, yeah. What, brought why is it that happening?
1: And sometimes that just happens. We call them grief bursts in our work. You know, you hear the, like I said, I hear silent night and I immediately start crying. Yeah. One of the um, authors that we've uh, had on our podcast she talked about there was a while she just stopped going to the peanut butter aisle in the grocery store because her husband loved peanut butter. He had died and she would go there and just start bawling. And she was tired of people walking past her going, what is wrong with this woman? So she started going to the grocery store, like really late at night so that she could go to the peanut butter aisle, have her tears, have her moment, get the peanut butter and go home. (laughs) But that speaks to, we're, we're talking about recording this during the holidays The holidays, I think, um, because it is the end of the year, and we have um, created this myth that the end of the year is where we take stock of Mm -hmm. what's been happening in our lives. But the reality is sometimes we have a little more time during the holidays. I don't think we do right now because I think everybody's gone bonkers and they're everywhere right now, but we do have a few days off. We get to spend some time with our family, which If we've lost a loved one in our family, that brings up all those family dynamics that we've had before. So it gives us time to do that, but it can also make it really hard. We put a lot of weight in traditions and holiday things that we do. And when there is an empty chair at the table at Thanksgiving or Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever, you can feel their absence. And it just brings up a lot of feelings, emotions, and we have to be brave enough to give ourselves, like you did, some space to have those feelings and acknowledge and I think, them.
0: I think what we do as a society in the in the U.S. anyway is we don't want to see the sadness at the holiday time. No. We'll be, we'll be like, oh, I don't know. I'm having a holiday party. And I, you know, Sharon, she lost her xyz this year and i mean should i invite her to the party because she's kind of sad right now or or be like you know do you have to do you have to be so sad we're just putting the tree we're putting the christmas tree up or or you know we we don't we don't give our friends our loved ones that space to grieve we, we no we no shut them off And I know that, I mean, I was having a conversation with um, a a girlfriend of mine, you know, several months ago, and she was going through a really difficult time, had, you know, some family dynamics had changed, she, you know, there's just all kind of fucked up shit going on, and she was truly grieving the loss of the family, you know, still alive, but she was, she was, the family was, the the dynamic was so, so broken that, and she was like, it's, it's ended. It's no more. And, and she was sharing with me about another friend of ours who couldn't just, sit with her and just be there and just listen and be like as as this friend is like talking about something that she's working through you know about the grief the other one's like well you know you're gonna be okay it's gonna gonna be fine you're gonna be fine you know we try try to rush people and i wonder what disservice are we doing to Mm -hmm. our friends and our loved ones but ourselves when we right right well i'm glad you brought that up because i think many times
1: an added burden that grievers have is those around them. And sometimes the people that you expect to step up and be supportive aren't able to do that. They either don't have the capacity, or as I think we talked about it a little bit before we started recording, many times I think the reason we rush things, one, we're just a fast society anyway, and we want you to move on as quickly as possible and forget whatever happened. And now it's exponential compared to even when we were growing up. When we see pain in other people, it reminds us of our own pain, mm-hmm. our own grief, our own loss, our own trauma, whatever that might be. And, and it's, it's it's instinctive. Our brain goes into, holy crap, I've got to get them past this in this conversation as quick as possible so I don't have to think about this. My. Now, we're not consciously thinking that. Yeah. Um, sometimes we might be if we're evil or whatever, but most of the time we're not. We're actually just thinking, Because if they're better, that means I'm going to probably be okay. And I get asked often, because when I speak to groups about grief, you know, what can I say? What can I do? There's literally nothing you can say or do other than what you said your friend needed, which was someone just to sit there and listen. Let us give them the space to cry, to scream, to throw things in a safe way Um, I'm a full-on believer, go to the garage sale, buy a bunch of old china from somebody and throw it in the backyard, like against the fence. I don't think there's anything wrong with that.
0: Um, It's not your china. It's somebody else's china. You bought it for $5. It's great.
1: And as Forrest Gump once said, "There's sometimes there's not enough rocks. And sometimes you have to do that. Uh, But really, when we have a friend, a relative who is grieving it's really hard to not want to fix things. Um, we are a fixing society. And especially I would say women do this because that's what we do all day is fix problems. And we want to fix things for friends. Sometimes we just have to shut our mouths and just nod our head. Yeah. And that's really, that's really honestly all we can do. And let that person know that you are willing to be there with them to do that. Um, you can ask some very specific things like, hey, I'm going to Target. Do you need anything from Target? I'm about to put in an order for groceries. Do you need, you know, these are this, those life skills stuff that when someone's grieving, they might like, oh, I don't know. They did not go to the grocery store in three weeks because mm-hmm. they don't want to go to the grocery store. Like my friend with the peanut butter aisle, like Better not yeah. to go. Now we don't have as much excuse because we can get it sent to our house. But
0: no, <laughs> um, seriously. But how, how fortunate, right? Yeah, how fortunate for the grieving the grieving person is like I don't right. have to go to the grocery store, nor do I have to starve. I can right. order my stuff. through I can you know, order my stuff. Services, but I think we also think that or have a tendency to put how we grieve and how how we handle things and expect, well, why why are you still sad? They, oh, yeah. He or she, they died two years ago. Why are you still sad? You know, and we may not say that out loud, but that could be going on in our brain and it could be our body language. And then the grieving person now feels guilty. They're like, why... I know I should be over this. According to everybody else, I should be done grieving by now. What's wrong with me? Because I'm so incredibly sad, and we, we don't help anybody. When I loved how in the beginning you said that grief is different for every person, mm-hmm. and the timeline is different. And you said it never ends, right? Grief, it doesn't. Uh, you know, um, and, and I'm not saying that. Oh, oh, it's never going to end. Well, it
1: changes. That's what I always tell people. Um, a lot of people are very familiar with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, Five Stages of Grief. When she did that original research, she wasn't really looking at the stages of grief as far as the death of a loved one. They were, she was looking at it in uh, connection with hearing a terminal diagnosis. Mm-hmm. and so a lot of people have attached to those five stages and like okay i've felt all these five things i why am i not feeling better because those are just five of about a billion things that you can feel when you're grieving and so it's been a little bit of a disservice in our modern world to think that you know once we do that i i had a young man whose mother had died um unfortunately in an opioid overdose mm-hmm. and i was talking with him and I said, well, how are things going? Because we, we had talked many times before. And he said, well, it's almost over. And I said, what do you mean? Because I thought I knew he was visiting with a therapist and stuff. And I said, oh, you mean talking to your therapist? Because unfortunately, with insurance, you might only get six times or five times or 10 times to talk to a therapist. Right,
0: because you should be done by now. You should be done you, by now. Yeah, because it's too expensive.
1: Yeah. And he said, no, I should be done grieving. And I went, oh. And I had to sit down and say, you know, it will be with you the rest of your life. It may not feel the same way. Um, David Kessler, who worked with uh, Cuba Ross, um, uh, one of the things I liked about it is he says that it it doesn't end, but the frequency of it changes. So you might go days, weeks, months and not have any strong feelings of grief, but you hear the song on the radio or... You go back to your hometown or whatever it might be, and those feelings come back. And I think that's why the holidays can be so challenging, because so many times that puts us back in connection with our families, connection with memories and traditions and things like that. And it just brings those sometimes really bittersweet thoughts back to us. You know, no one wants to stop talking about their loved one. But there is a point, unfortunately, that people stop asking We highly encourage in our work, um, and that's one of the reasons we exist, is so that people can come and tell the stories of their loved ones. You know, I just did a class. uh, We do a class called a mindful memory keeping where folks can sort of think about what they want to, how they want to remember their loved one, maybe in a a tangible way. But also, what do you do with all the stuff? Mm. We have a lot of stuff we collect a lot of stuff and people feel very guilty about getting rid of their loved one's stuff because for some people that is the last thing they have of them, whether it's a a storage unit full of stuff or a little box full of jewelry, you know, it's just, it's, it's a very difficult thing. So we kind of Marie Kondo it a little bit and we use a a tool called the um, object meditation, where you kind of take each thing that is important to you or maybe important to your loved one and kind of like sit with it and decide, you know, is this something that I need to keep for me, you know, to remember them? If it's not that important, maybe there's someone you can give it to within the family. And then if it's just junk and nobody wants it, Mm -hmm. then you find it a good home, you know, whether that's donating it, incinerating it, um, because sometimes that happens, has to happen too. Like sometimes we have to just literally it doesn't exist anymore to be able to, to get through it. So, yeah.
0: yeah. I think that one of the things that, uh, when you asked your, the young man whose mother had, or parent had passed Mm -hmm. how he was doing, I remember when I was going through cancer and this is one of the things that I also let people know who have friends going through cancer or is that you just ask somebody, how are you today? How do you feel today? Yep, and you just want to know in that moment, you know, when you're g- going through treatment or something like that, you could feel fabulous one day and absolute, you know, shit the next day, you know, and then just have somebody just wanted to know how you were today, um, which was always nice because they just in the moment. And then the other thing about that is, again, talking about the burden of people grieving. a similar experience when I was going through cancer treatment and was that, I found that there were two types of people. Those that were, again, surprise you, that you know show up when you're like, oh, you're, you're gonna be my support, part- support partner, fabulous. And then there were others that I had to help them cope with the fact that I had cancer. So when somebody's grieving, the last thing that I, could, I expect that they wanna do is help somebody else cope with the fact that you have lost somebody. right? But even though we're both grieving, we're both yes. in a different level. Yes, but, but it can happen. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I'm
1: glad you brought that back up because it's not unusual for a griever to realize that they have to adjust their own grief with certain people mm. because maybe they're also grieving the loss. Or maybe it's just that they, they realize that when I come to the group every time and I'm sad, this person just can't handle it. Like it just freaks them out. And many times it's because that other person sees their pain and it brings up old wounds.
0: Yeah. You said that. Yeah.
1: And that's something that happens in grief too, because depending on whatever the relationship was with the person who died or whatever the relationship was with the circumstance, it can bring back all kinds of old wounds that maybe didn't heal or weren't addressed. And sometimes what we think, oh, this is grief. It's grief and, uh-huh. you know, it's probably grief and maybe some trauma from their childhood or maybe it was grief and, you know, I've lost three people, but really the grief that bothered or, or hung has hung with me the most was my divorce, you know, so like it, it's it's not one thing and we can come as, as a support person, as far as a friend, a relative, something, if we come to people with compassionate curiosity and I loved what you are saying, how are you doing today? Um, we take it one step further. How are you doing today? Really? Um, because we okay. want to ask that last question because so many times, Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Especially if they've already received sort of some, Hey, I don't want to hear all of it from that person. <laughs> they're like, yeah. You know, yeah so they're like, okay, I can give them a little bit, but I can't tell them, Oh my gosh, today I just like balled in the car in the car for two hours. Um, so When we do check-ins, when we're having our workshops or our support groups, we'll ask that question. So, how are you doing today? Really?
0: Really. How are you doing today? Really. really.
1: And during the pandemic, I just clung on that to anybody I talked to because we were all dealing with this so bizarre situation. I, I wanted to get past the hi, how are you's and all that stuff. I wanted to know the real stuff because my anxiety was off the charts and I could see it in my kids. I could see it in other people. And so, I was like... Yeah, let's get past that. I'm fine. Cause nobody's fine right
0: now. And <laughs> well, you've said a couple of times here on the podcast that we recognize in somebody else's pain, our own pain. Right. And, and we want, we, we may not want to be dealing with it. We may not want to look at it, but, I remember one of the things about the pandemic or the shutdown because we're still in the pandemic. We haven't yeah, we haven't yeah, conquered yeah. COVID. Um, but a friendly note, friendly suggestion: get your vaccination, get your second vaccination, get your booster. Just a friendly push. The faster we all have that, the faster we're all done. And but, if you uh, feel
1: bad, stay home, please.
0: Yeah, yeah. We're, you know, wear a mask. Yeah. Cough into your arm. All those good wash things. Your, wash, wash your hands. hands people. Wash your hands, people. <laughs>
1: I'm just going to say it right here. Wash your hands, people. Wash
0: your hands. But and, what, I fa- <laughs> what I found during the, the pandemic time, the shutdown time, was right. the fact that we had this time. They had this space. We, we didn't have all this stuff to keep us busy, to keep us distracted. And so much shit comes up when oh, yeah. you are just sitting there with yourself now. And I'm just, I'm, I'm exaggerating it, but I'm not really exaggerating it.
1: Oh, no, it's, I think it's truly, we'll be talking about, at least for the rest of our lives, we'll be talking yes. about this and some of the outcomes that have happened. I mean, we've seen the outcomes on television. We've seen the awful TikTok videos of people acting out as much as, Humanly possible in such awful ways, and that's pain.
0: Yeah,
1: that's you know yelling at the person behind the counter. That's pain. Cussing out the teacher. That's pain. Uh, yelling at the school board. You know that's that's what that is. Um, we don't all know. You know, <laughs> if we want to get a little re- religious for a moment. You know, Jesus said, "Forgive them, God, for they do not know what they're doing." Paraphrasing there, it's true. Like we don't consciously know that that's where this is coming from because we we don't, we are just now starting to get the language and some acceptance around pain, healing, trauma, and and talking about behavioral health, mental health, brain health as something we actually need to pay attention to.
0: Another layer to the fact that we were, mm-hmm. you know, We were all shut down, like the world was shut down. We were all shut down at the same time. We have an entire globe processing, processing Mm -hmm. trauma, processing pain, when before, pre-pandemic, you know, might be might be the neighbor three doors down their processing pain right now. But we're going on our, our merry way. Oh well that oh that person over there or my my cousin in you know Baltimore, that's they're processing it. So like like right. hit and miss processing. But when we were shut down, then then everybody everybody was stopped. And yeah. so we didn't have the capacity as society to deal with all of our stuff that was coming oh no not at all like and
1: and, i mean i look at it this way it's it's not completely our fault
0: no no we
1: we have given ourselves no i mean if you're like myself who's worked on things gone to therapy done all these things and i'm not saying i'm awesome because i'm not Um, I'm still working on it. It's all about
0: roommate.
1: So yeah, exactly. Hello. Um, It's all about practice and and that's all we can do is practice. You know, we can practice to be right. And part of that in grief is that learning process of learning who we are now that our loved one has died, or maybe now that my marriage has ended or maybe now that my lifelong uh, companion, my pet isn't here anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, We've had a lot of folks during the last year and a half coming to, especially because all our programs have been online until just recently, coming to our groups, Um, we'll at least have one or two people per group that they're not there necessarily for the death of a loved one, but they are there for a different kind of loss. And even though our, our specialty or whatever, our mission is dealing with those who've lost a loved one, we don't turn folks away for that because the loss that they're experiencing, the grief that they're experiencing is just as valid as yeah. the loss of a spouse or loss of a child. And for some, it can be much more challenging to work toward healing. Um, and when I say healing, I'm not saying healed. There's a difference. Okay. Um, healing is a long-term process. Um, if you've experienced, we are all healing from what's happened to us, you know, um, and we can choose to work on it, or we can be distracted. And we have built in, I mean, we have whole mega corporations who've created technologies that can keep us completely distracted and disassociated from what's happening to us. Like it is like never in the history of humankind have we been able to be more distracted than right now.
0: We can just say, like, you know, the whole, uh, the whole system, U.S. society and the world society was completely distracted in March of 2020 by Tiger King. <laughs> you know, like, we all distracted ourselves by watching Tiger King. Who would have ever thought we would even. Poor, what's her name? Was it Carol? Yeah, the, the, I mean, the Baskin lady.
1: Carol. Yeah, but that's, I mean, like, she does cameo videos, you know, like
0: we were all in such a, a state Yeah, watching tiger king made all of us feel better about the state we were in because we weren't them oh well and it you was know, like isn't that, okay, isn't so that what is pretty shitty but at least it's not that shitty
1: <laughs> well well that's been my theory always along about this excessive scripted reality television
0: mm-hmm.
1: was to see what they call reality which i'm like i don't know whose reality that is but there is some of the shows that are truly reality, but never had we ever uh, thought that we would sit there and watch other people's lives and and sit there and feel better about ourselves because TV before that was always like fantastical, like the perfect situation that we knew we didn't have the one that we aspire to. And then we see train wrecks all the time and we're like, Oh my gosh, but we love train wrecks. We love them with a passion it is, a, it is a phenomenon. I still don't know what it is. I think it gets back to, oh, better them than me. I don't know.
0: Well, yeah. Um, but if we wrap this back to like our conversation about grief, yeah. we like train wrecks that are two-dimensional on a screen. Right. We don't really do well with somebody that we perceive is having, is a train wreck due to grief. Thank you.
1: It, exactly. Them. Because on the screen, it's not in your living room.
0: And it's, it's not in your. It's like, 10 minutes and a commercial or, or, you know, 35 minutes. And then there's another episode. I mean, it's, it's shorter blocks of time. Yeah. If you're sitting with somebody who is in the throes of grief and you're sitting with them, that 10 minutes that can mean the world to them could feel like hours and days because you are so uncomfortable with being, and I'm saying you collectively are so uncomfortable with being just there and right. offering a solution.
1: And that's and it's hard, believe me. It, yeah. It's a very hard thing to do. I've been fortunate in doing this work the last few years that um, when I'm sitting with a group of folks who, you know, no one believed that we would get online and people would share their most difficult experiences. And they do. I knew they would. I've worked, I've done online learning for a very long time. And I, I said, you know, I'm, I think this will definitely work. But other people weren't convinced until they saw it. In fact, I think being online, even though we were face-to-face on, on Zoom, I think the fact that they could find a place that they could take the mask off and cry if they needed to, be angry if they needed to, and we would give them the space and time to do that. We always highly recommend wherever you are on your grief journey, if you need to pay someone like a therapist, do that. Find a support group. If you have a good friend or someone who you didn't expect that shows up on your doorstep and says, hey, let's go get coffee and just listens, take advantage of those things. It's hard, though, many times as a griever. And I think especially during the holidays, because you mentioned about having a party and do we invite this person or not? Yeah. The griever is very they're aware of that. They're like, nobody would want me to come to this party. At least ask. Yeah. Um, Acknowledge them. Ask them about their loved one. Uh, Tell me more about Bob. Um, It doesn't doesn't have to be much. It's that compassionate curiosity, ask questions. Um, We all learned, you know, to ask open-ended questions, you know, as the best way to communicate and get answers. And it's true. Um, You don't have to, you know, become a grief educator or grief counselor
0: to be able to do these things um because i think if you can just be there and mm -hmm. acknowledge and work on for yourself uh, give yourself the grace that you don't have to have a solution thank you there you go this person's this, per- this person's um, mm-hmm. need right now. And really mm-hmm. that what they just need is the touch of another human being, the presence of another right. human being, the acknowledgement that they are uh, they are in pain and, and sad and, mm-hmm. and, you, and you don't have to fix it. So, so like taking that burden off yourself, you can be a better loved one, friend, companion, yeah. whatever it is to that person. And then as a person who's grieving, you have all the power in the world to determine to decide what you want. If you want somebody there, then you can have somebody there. If you don't want somebody there, you don't ha- and you don't have to listen to somebody. You don't have to take their suggestions or their right. advice or what worked for them was going to the spa and having their petty pedi- let's go get you know the pedicure. that'll make you feel better. You have the control to determine how you want it.
1: Right, right. And part of that as the griever, and it's hard for us because we're uh, conditioned to think that we're supposed to do all this on our own. And grieving alone is very lonely. And so we always recommend, again, find someone to talk to, find someone that you can share with and ask for help. There is more strength in that than we ever in our society give credit for it. And you might not know what you need. Just say that. Say, I don't know what I need, mean, but I just need somebody to be here.
0: Uh-huh.
1: One of a uh, gentlemen that was in our group and his wife died um, in August of 2020. And she had had pancreatic cancer and everybody just swooped in. Um, she was a twin and her twin sister moved in and the cousins and everybody came and they all stayed and he said i don't know how i could have got through those first few weeks had they not been there and they just sort of took over and did everything and then it was time for everyone to leave and he said that's when i knew i needed to ask for help and so he's like i found a therapist and now i'm here in your group Mm -hmm. and he's actually come it's amazing We'd also get the privilege sometimes to see people as they're progressing in moving forward through their grief journey. Um, He's come to multiple workshops. We have workshops start every other month. Um, And he's come to several over the last year and a half. And just to see where he was at the beginning and to see where he is now, um, you know, and and he'll say, "I, you know, still struggle every day. I still have moments. But he's like, I'm in such a different place. And, you know, there's lots of, um, as a griever, there's lots of uh, tools and techniques that you can learn from a therapist or from a grief workshop type thing. Um, We do a lot of work like meditation and prayer, spiritual practices. You can employ things that can help in a active, positive way, give you some space. Because for some people, maybe they don't have time have those feelings to like break down or cry or whatever but maybe they have 15 minutes at night to write in a journal yeah you know there's lots of different things you can do to help sort of put some of those feelings somewhere
0: i remember when uh, i was going through my divorce and early days early years because it took a while for us to get divorced but i remember being really like frustrated with the fact that I had not, I did not have a chance to just like lay in my bed and cry for three days, right? It's like, I didn't get the, in in my mind, the luxury to grieve the Mm -hmm. divorce because I had three children that were zero, four and eight years old. You know, I there were three people that I had to make sure I took care of. And I know that that lack of grieving it at that point in time extended how long it took to actually grieve and heal from it now i'm not trying to lecture anybody in any way because i know everybody has everybody has responsibilities and you do what's the best thing that you can do but i recognize now you know many many years later that i didn't have the opportunity Mm -hmm. just to have that acute sadness and in right. my mind, what like like feel it all and like oh release release release. Instead, it had right. to be like increment and then increment and then increment. And it's like, when is this gonna end? <laughs> well, and I think
1: for for most people, that's what their grief experience, especially in postmodern world, um, because many of us are working, we have families to raise, we aren't able to just sort of like jump in and, okay. Like I had uh, somebody in one of our groups and her husband died right before the pandemic, like the very beginning of March and unexpectedly. Uh, and she's she said, you know, I am unlike you. She had weeks that she could just ball herself up in the bed and cry. And she's like, I'm probably the only person that has enjoyed the pandemic because <laughs> I've been able to have the space. I've, my kids have been home because they got sent home from the pandemic. So we got to be together while we are doing this. And she's like, they wouldn't have, they, I would have sent them back to school. I would have been like, okay, we got to get on with our, you know, on with pull,
0: be positive, pull, you know, pull
1: positive. up our food and let's go. Cause Just you know, you got to stay strong. Cause you know, that you know, we don't want anything to get out of hand here, you know, like feelings and, and other such stuff. And I'm sorry that you didn't have that opportunity.
0: Well, you know, I appreciate that. You know, you're saying that, uh, I, I didn't bring it up to bitch and moan about it. No, no. It like I a rec- recognition of how, you know, when you can get into the feelings and feel the feelings, they can be released and no longer hold you captive Right. And I'm speaking very generally. Everyone is going to go through it that, you know, their own way. But I almost feel like the, the emotions h- held on. And it was and I don't want anybody, I don't want my ex-husband to think that I was like, you know, sad that I wasn't married to him. I, I don't want him to think that at all. <laughs> Please. It wasn't that. It was more of a, it was, you know, it was, it was this end. It was, you know, of, of and, you know, when you end a relationship and. Yeah. And there's, and you know, and sometimes it was amicable and sometimes it wasn't amicable and you have all oh, of those right. emotions that go with it. But when you, and you can't, because of other, other pulls on you, other responsibilities, mm-hmm. get to be able to sit there with it. It's going to show up someplace else. And so oh, during, it definitely will. Yeah. It, during it the last, will. you know, 16 years, it would show up other places. Mm-hmm. And, and I only now, you know, I'm like, ah, oh, because I didn't, I didn't get to feel, feel, feel. I mean, I felt stuff, but I couldn't get, I couldn't process it like you, you would if you right, had right. Well, to sit we through. we call it delayed grief, delayed and it's grief.
1: basically grief we don't get to feel when we need to feel it. Um, we're in many times we're in survival mode, and I think that's the stat, the actual experience most of us have had during the pandemic, because we've had this unusual situation. Unfortunately, many people have lost loved ones and, but people didn't get to grieve the way they needed to. It just was super weird. And we know there's this thing out there that could kill us. Mm -hmm. And unlike other situations, like you were talking before, where, you know, this person dies, this person dies, this person dies, it happens, but we don't really connect to it. Unlike this time where we were all in the same boat for a short time. And so, but your boat at the time, you were like paddling, you know, and you had to paddle because you got three kids in here. They got on life vest. I got my life vest on. We got to make through it. We got to try not to go over the falls.
0: Right. But, you know,
1: we got to do this, but we still got to get to wherever we're going. Right. And delayed grief, many times, I I think it's also very accepted because. Okay, you know, the funerals happen. Now we should be done. Let's get going. Like, uh, I do appreciate there in some faith traditions, they do a little bit better job with grief. In the Jewish faith, they have Shiva, which uh, basically the people who have lost the loved one literally sit in a house for seven days while everybody else does all the busy work and gives the people who are grieving these seven days to do that. And then there's certain prayers with the Kaddish that you pray for a month, and then you go from there and there. And so there's some sort of an outline of how we can support those who are grieving. In typical Western culture, though, we don't do that. Like, I mean, you mentioned it before, a century ago, uh, you knew who was grieving. They were black. They may have a black armband. People put, uh, they covered their mirrors in their house. They had maybe a black sign on the door. There was a way to know that that family had experienced loss or an individual did. I mean, Queen Victoria made a whole like fashion line out of it. We don't do that anymore, except for the Goths. God bless the Goths because they still appreciate death.
0: But we don't, we don't even accept
1: it or. Oh no. And in our, in our filter world, because we're filtering ourselves all the time, we can filter grief right out the door. There has been, I will have to say, when uh, talking about silver linings around the pandemic, I do think because we've had so much loss during this time, it has brought the discussion around grief to the forefront more. There's more discussion about it. Um, There's certainly more talk about end of life decisions. I don't think most Americans knew what a DNR was before two years ago, and they do now. And so those end of life directives and things like that, I'm hopeful that people start to take advice and start developing those living wills, those kinds of things. I know we get busy and we ignore those things, but they're so important to make the end of life process a little bit less litigious and annoying. (laughs) And because that's just extra burden on the grievers, having to figure out a will, having to figure out a funeral
0: you know how to, how to figure out the password for the phone that the oh, loved one left behind you know that's facial recognition or something like that yeah. i mean the te- it, yeah the
1: the technology hangover from that gr- griever's experience now is is pretty
0: heavy um you, know, you said earlier like facebook yeah like memories i mean i don't like when facebook Prompts my memories from right. like you know last year or three years ago, and in the and my our listeners understand that I was you know not a fan of the former guy, the prior president, not a fan of him at all. And so when I'm prompted with the memory from you know two years ago of something that I was sharing about some you know some crisis that was going, I'm like, right. oh, I don't want to see this again. I don't oh, want no. to see this again. And that's just like you know the former guy, the crisis that he was creating. I can't imagine when you're prompted with memories of of your loved one's death or or that that special time you had together or or whatever it is like like did i ask you today facebook to send me that no i didn't but right
1: know- and just you know just this the, the asterisk the side note of it. It, it is an intrusion um the asterisk is it's really hard to get those accounts Accepted. So, even though people hate to do this, I'm just going to tell you, and we all hate passwords. Write them down somewhere if you can, um, because that's uh, one of our um, just wonderful people that is a big supporter of our program. Uh, she's a writer, and her son died tragically in a motorcycle accident a couple of years ago um, in 2018. And just now this fall, she's finally been able to access his. He was a web developer and did a bunch of stuff. And so he had a lot of clients that just kind of got left. She, yeah. It took her two, almost three years to be able to access his accounts mm. through Amazon, AWS, um, nothing against them, but they just honestly didn't have any way to to give that to. I mean, yeah. there wasn't anything there. there. There's things like that that you don't even think about before your loved one dies, even if they're not on social media, there's a lot of stuff that can add. So all I can say is my advice is get your directives taken care of, write down your passwords, find these things so that you're not struggling at the last minute to figure some of this stuff out as you're
0: grieving. As you're grieving. Yeah you know, it's like a Herculean task to grieve and then to yeah. add all the other stuff on top of it. Yeah. And so the best thing that we can, uh, you know, as we wrap this conversation up, say to um, our friends or loved ones, or it was like, just love your friend who's yeah. grieving. Loved your loved one who's grieving. Yep. Accept the love that they're giving you when you're grieving, you Yeah. Know? the best thing we can do is share the love um, because it's not always going to be there. Right. It's not always going to be there. Well, right. You know, and, it, and, and, you know, life is so short and that's what, you know, the loss of someone or something, you know, something so important to you just reminds you again, that life is so short. Well, and, well you
1: um, said at the beginning about um, picking the wine and it was a Craig Baker special. And though you'd only met him a few times, it still sort of touched you uh, once you heard that he had died. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anybody's, unaffected by a death, you know, even if you didn't know the person very much, you may not grieve them formally or like formally. his friends
0: and family. Right. Are right. Grieving him. Yeah.
1: But I, I think that's the, the thing with what we've gone through recently and anybody who's experienced the loss of something that's important to them, something that they've loved, a person, a thing, a relationship, it does get us in touch with our humanity and that no one will escape grief at some level that's mm-hmm. thing and we all will lose something i mean there's yeah. there's no you don't get a pass i mean yeah. we, part of the human condition for those of us who are now in our 50s and those of us who are older we start to see how I mean, I'm experiencing now I've had more people, contemporaries die recently in the last couple of years than
0: ever. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And you start to have this sort of existential wow, you know, wow moment. I mean, I I remember when you were going through treatment, the thing that I love, thank goodness for Facebook, because I was able to follow your treatment was you were so funny through the, the treatment and what you would post. And I would just say like, this is so Michelle. And I so appreciate it. Cause I felt like I was going at least seeing what was happening. Yeah, I certainly wasn't, I wasn't able to be there. And I probably was a crappy friend cause um, no, they, crappy we're all friend. far too um, selfish most of the time. But I remember thinking, I was like, I'm so glad that she's able to do this. everyone else and i know it was probably a burden for you but i was like but i i can see this as a way for her as a coping Uh technique to be able to get it out as opposed to keeping it in you nor i are like well we're inward people like we're really ambidextrous when it comes to this kind of stuff we're very extroverted most of the time but we're we think a lot
0: yeah yeah.
1: Which, you know,
0: I mean, I, I don't think I've ever had a problem expressing myself. And right. I think that also shows that why I have a podcast, because right. I, you know, I, I can talk about myself for a long time. <laughs> you know what? But but it's interesting. People love to listen to it. Um, and I appreciate, I appreciate everybody who listens and the support that they give and all of that sort of stuff. I really, really do.
1: Yeah, um, yeah.
0: But I, I also feel an obligation and a responsibility to, you know, share these thoughts and, and bring these topics up, you know, because yeah. if I'm thinking about them. I know my contemporaries, my friends, my listeners are also right. thinking about them. And so right. what, what do I do is I just give voice to our thoughts.
1: Right. Exactly. Because you know? that's really all we can do. That's all we can um, do.
0: And it's it's such a privilege to be able to do it. And it's yeah. Yeah. It definitely a privilege. And it's, it's, it's even when the topics are, are if we're talking about sex or we're talking about grieving or we're talking about grieving that we're not having sex or whatever it is, you know. But well, and,
1: and that is a thing. Um, and then there is also sex Uh, During grief, which we didn't even really talk about that. That's a whole other show. (laughs) That is a whole other show, unfortunately, but we may have to uh, do that later.
0: (laughs) That's totally fine. That's actually a two bottle show, two bottles for you, two bottles for me. Yeah, I'm going to say it has to be. So, if our listeners um, are curious, can you just give like your website? I mean, I absolutely. Is, I, I bet you you have resources on there, even if they're not in the Dallas, Texas area, that can connect them to to something that is is more local for them, or you know, join your online groups or whatever. So you can go to faithandgrief.org and we are
1: a uh, multi-faith nonprofit. So, we appreciate all faiths, all faith traditions, and even those that don't claim a faith tradition. We all have ways that we deal with grief, but we really feel it's important to find a safe community to come and be able to talk about your loved ones, share your feelings with some amenity, if you want. We uh, have in-person groups that will actually all be going back in person in January, hopefully, if Everything continues down the road if, um, if in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but also several uh, locations around the country. Closest one to use Kansas City. and But we also have online support groups and workshops that um, happen. The online support groups happen once a month. We call them gatherings because we partake in some food while we're online and then we have workshops and retreats where f- folks can come from all over the country and join us there.
0: I really appreciate you joining me today on the podcast. Uh, okay. I think we we covered an awful lot. We're going to add your link in our show notes and any other resources that you think, you know, but um, you know, the best thing I can say for our, you know, listeners is, you know, just continue to take care of yourself, take care yep. of your loved ones, take care of your neighbors, try the best you can. And that's all we can ask. That's all we can do.
1: Uh, we're all doing the best we can. We hope. Yeah. And, and if you feel like you're not, don't worry. You're in good company. But when you have those feelings, ask for help. Ask for help.
0: Until next time. Bye.